Well, I'm talking to you about being a part of Andrew's army. And our text today is in the book of Matthew, chapter number four. Would you turn in your Bible there, please? And we see another mention of this man, Andrew, Andrew's army. Andrew is the man, the one disciple in the Bible that who every time we see him is bringing other people to Jesus or is involved in bringing other people to Jesus in some way. He is Mr. Soul Winner, Mr. Witness for Christ. And he spent his life doing that until he died a martyr's death over in the northern part of Greece in the first century, the end of the first century. In Matthew chapter 4, stand with me please, and let's read about the time when he made his surrender to the Lord, his followed the Lord's calling for his life, Matthew chapter 4, and we read beginning in verse 18. Now, Andrew had already met the Lord at this point. This is not the first time he meets him. And in Matthew 4 and 18, Jesus walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon, called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea. They were commercial fishermen, professional fishermen, and they were fishers. That's what that means. And he said unto them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. You've been literal fishermen, I'm going to make you fishermen for the souls of men henceforth. And in verse 20, they straightway or immediately left their nets and they followed Jesus. And you may be seated. This is the account, of course, of the Lord Jesus Christ calling Andrew and his brother Simon Peter to become followers or to become disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as I said, every time you see Andrew in the Bible, he's associated in some way with bringing other people to Jesus Christ. And this is no exception here today because he and his brother are fishing. Jesus comes along and he calls them to leave their commercial fishing uh, business and to become his followers full time, which they did. Now, this happened after they had met the Lord Jesus Christ, which is the account of that is over in the book of John chapter 1. And so I've been dealing with this now. This is, what, my third week or fourth week? I'm I'm not sure. And what I would, would like to see is for the Lord to enlist an army, that's a lot of people, to commit themselves in their hearts and minds to reaching other people for Jesus Christ. This church was really born with the idea of personal soul winning. I've told you this story many times. I will not repeat it. But I came to Florence. I didn't know anybody but one family. I began to go door to door, knock on doors, and invite people to church. And when they would allow me, I would share the gospel with them. I had great confidence that we could build a church because I didn't depend on my preaching. I'd never preached. I learned on some poor people who came out in those days, but I was not a preacher, but I knew this. I had learned to reach people for Christ through personal conversation, through what we call soul winning. And so I thought, 
You don't really have to be a great preacher to, to reach people for Christ if you're willing to just talk to people about it. More people are open to it than we think are open to it. And so our church was born with that. And in the early days, I did a lot of teaching on this. And God gave us a circle of people, quite a number of people here. And they had a burden, they had a heart, and they, they were very intentional in sharing the gospel. Now, the years have come and gone, and God has blessed the church with a lot of favor. You know what my goal is now is to enlarge that circle or reach another whole circle of people. I'm primarily concerned about younger people who are sitting here from the time you're about high school age right on up until you're about 45 or 50 years old. That group of people right there, I really want to see God raise up an army of people that will carry on the ministry of the Florence Baptist Temple. And I think as long as people think like that, you never need to worry about the church getting off track. Now, last week, I talked to you about the message. The message is the gospel. I told you that the Bible has 66 books. It has 1,189 chapters. It has 33,000 verses. But the gospel is just 10 words. 10 words. It's not, it is not complex. The implications of it are profoundly complex, but the gospel itself is 10 words. Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. 10 words. Those words, though, are the power of God unto salvation. Those words are the nut the core, the germ, the heart of what the Christian faith is about. Ten words. Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. I repeat it because I want you to know it. Now today, I'm going to talk to you about how to share the gospel. Through the years, we've had program after program after program trying to teach people how to effectively share the gospel. And we had, in the early days, I used what is called the Romans Road Method to train people. And we would train people. And a lot of times back then, I did something like I'm doing today on Sunday nights or Wednesday nights. And then we went on to another program developed by Dr. James Kennedy called Evangelism Explosion. And our church went through that for a number of years in which we were training people to share the gospel of Christ through that approach. There's a lot of good ways to do it. And then we had another era in the church's life when we taught people to do a method called faith. And all of those are very, very good ways, except I have one little flaw I think that they have. They sound an awful lot like a canned sales pitch. And I really don't want you to think that, when, that sharing the gospel is a sales pitch. When people start sounding like a canned sales pitch, we all kind of turn them off, don't we? We think that that's plastic, that that's not real, that that's not authentic. But when somebody just talks to us out of their heart, we are open to that. We're much more open to that. So today, I want to I train 
Andrew's army. I want to start with basic training. I hope you'll take some notes here, but really most of what you're going to know is right here on these two little pieces that we gave you a while ago, and we're going to use those in a moment. But if you want to take some notes with me, number one today in sharing the gospel, I want you to start here. Number one, I want you to make a list of non-Christian people that you know and commit to pray regularly for them. Make a list of non-Christians in your life and commit yourself to pray regularly for them. By the way, I practice what I preach. I've started my little list. I've never done it like this exactly before. I put it in my Bible. Let me tell you why putting it in the Bible is important. You can write it on a sheet of paper and you'll lose it. And you know what I want you to do? I want you to write down the people that you know that are not Christians that need the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want you to focus on those people the rest of your life until the Lord leads them to salvation. And so I don't want you to lose it. I want, this is a long-term plan. And I want you to begin. I thought of two people I put on my list yesterday. I don't want a big, big list of 500 names necessarily because I want a group of people that the Lord really lays on my heart and I list their names in my Bible and I think about them on a regular basis. I didn't say daily. I don't want to make the bar so high that nobody wants to attempt it. I don't want the expectations to be unrealistic, but I want to commit to pray for them on a regular basis. And I want to see them one by one come to know the Lord Jesus. So it begins with you making a list. Who are your friends? Who are your relatives? Who, are, who do you work with? Who are neighbors of yours? Uh, distant cousins, enemies. <laughs> I want you to think of everybody you can think of that you know and people that you... Now, don't put them down if they're a Christian. We're not talking about having fellowship with Christians. We're talking about reaching people who need Christ and you have good reason to think that they're unsaved. Maybe they are saved, but you don't know. But it doesn't appear that they are from observation, humanly speaking. Number two... I want you to listen when you're around them. Uh, that's a point that I want to make real quickly, but you know what? Sometimes Christians are just so anxious to talk to people that they don't stop and listen. When we listen to people, people immediately are drawn to us. Everybody loves a good listener. What we don't love is a big mouth who dominates every conversation and doesn't let us ever even express ourselves at all. Learn to listen to those people when you're around them. There's a wonderful illustration in the Bible of the Lord Jesus. Do you know when Jesus met the woman at the well? He didn't run up to her and he said, Hey, do you know today if you died, you'd go to heaven? He didn't start like that. What did he talk to her about? He spoke to her about water. She's coming to get water. He has nothing to get water with. He's thirsty and tired. She is, he's sitting on the well. She comes and he begins to talk to her about their common interest, water. And in process of time, he begins to talk to her about her soul. Every principle that I'm going to share with you today, Jesus shared with that woman there, by the way. I won't have time to go through it. But when we listen to people, we're being sensitive to them. 
We're, we're not attempting to manipulate them. We're just attempting to meet them halfway and talk to them on a very common level. And so Jesus listened to her. And when we listen to people, they tell us what they're interested in. Just listen to your friends for a few minutes, and they'll tell you what their concerns are. They'll tell you what their worries and what is on their heart and what they've been thinking about. If you will listen to people, they'll tell you how to lead them to Christ in many cases. Number three, I hope you'll write this one down. You must master a method. You must master a method. I have listened to some lay people sometimes in training try to give the gospel, and sometimes they didn't know what they were doing, or they got nervous or whatever. You must master a method to present the gospel. If you want to present the gospel clearly and simply and biblically, You've got, to, you've got to have your thoughts flowing in a logical way where you share the real meaning of the gospel of Christ. I think sometimes people think witnessing is just striking up a conversation about Christianity. That is not witnessing. I'm not talking about just opening up a conversation and somebody, well, you know, I believe in the whatever it is, and you just go back and forth about any subject. No, If you're going to be a fisher of men, as Andrew was, and if we're going to be effective in presenting the gospel, if we're going to be evangelists like Jesus envisioned us being evangelists, we have to have a method. Now, I didn't say a sales pitch. I don't mean that. Uh, Mark Cahill said, it is a conversation. It's not a presentation. And there's wisdom in that. I'm not trying to teach you how to sit down and make a speech about the gospel. I want you to understand, though, that there are some points that have to be made, about three or four of them. If you don't make those, people don't understand the gospel. And so you must have a method that is simple, 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 that is clear, that is very, very biblical, that uses the Word of God, because if you don't use the Word of God, you don't have the power of God with you. And there are many good methods. This is not the only one. But remember, talking to people and sharing the gospel is not a presentation. It's a conversation. Now, take your book. Here is a method. This is a method. When a person goes fishing, they have a fishing net. Or they go by the bait store and they get some bait. Or they get a cane pole or a rod and a reel. They sometimes get really into it and buy a boat and a motor. And they buy all kinds of equipment and because they're serious about their fishing. Now, if you're not interested in ever winning a soul to Christ, you don't need to listen. But if you are interested in being one of those Andrews, one of those followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, a fisher of men, then I'm going to put the pole in your hand and I'm going to bait it for you today and I'm going to help you to where it's really very, very easy for you to be able to share the gospel and to lead somebody to Christ. Some of you know this and some of you could stand here and do what I'm going to do right now, but many of you, this will be your first exposure to this. So this is our, this is our pole right here, right? This is our net. 
This is what we're using to fish with. This is the baited hook, and it's ready to go. Notice you don't even have to open the book to get into the conversation that we want to have with people because it asks you on the cover, may I ask you a question? Talk about being nice. That's really being nice with people. And if you want to reach people for Christ, you can't be offensive. You've got to really be nice. You're asking permission. Can I ask you a question? I have had, never had anybody say to me, no, you can't ask me a question. And never in all my life have I had anybody say no to that. When you are nice enough to ask people, can I ask you a question? Even when they know what's coming, they'll say yes to you. So you don't even have to open the book. People so, so often say to me, well, how do I get into a spiritual conversation with people? You ask them a question. It, it never fails. You don't have to try to work it in and weave it in and come through the back door with some cute and fancy method. No, you just say to them, I'd like to ask you a question. May I? And they'll say yes most of the time, particularly if you have any kind of relationship with them, they're going to. Now, I flip it open to the first page and I ask another question. Mark Cahill put a great emphasis on answering or asking questions, and I want to put the same emphasis on it. We don't ask enough questions. We tend to tell people rather than ask people. So no matter what the subject, people like to answer your questions because people like to hear themselves talk. And so they'll almost always answer your question. This is a profound question. Believe me, these people have really thought this out that printed this book. Has anyone ever taken a Bible and shown you how you can emphasize, know for sure that you're going to heaven? Has anybody ever taken a Bible? You know what? So many people will tell you, no, they haven't. Now, a lot of people are saved in church. They're saved in VBS. They're saved in different ways. But do you know, rarely does anybody ever get someone to sit down, a friend who cares about them, and share the gospel of Christ on a personal basis with them. Has anybody ever done that? So they're going to say yes or no. Now, somebody asked me the other day and said, well, it says now that you're going to show them from the Bible. So we give you the bookmark here, the card. You can put it in your Bible. If you would prefer to just use the outline and go down through it and use the Bible and turn to the scriptures in the Bible and let them read it from the Bible as you go through it, that's fine. So that's the purpose of the bookmark. I'm not going to use it anymore. It has the same material in it that the little pamphlet has. But for those of you who like to use the Bible or use the New Testament, you can just fold that. You can put it right in your little pocket New Testament, and you've got the whole outline there to help you as you get started, and someday you'll memorize it. So you can use your Bible if you like and use the little outline card. Now, the Bible contains bad news, and the Bible contains good news. The bad news is about you. And the good news is about God. Let's look at the bad news first. You really want to go through those little transition statements because that keeps the logical flow of thoughts moving there. And so we go over and flip the page, and it says bad news number one, bad news one. 
Now, I want you to notice the format. If you get this in your mind, I will have helped you. I don't need to read the book to you. I want you to understand what we're doing here, the psychology, the thinking that goes on behind this. First of all, you'll find in four times now we're going to do the same thing. We've got a statement, we are all sinners. Then we've got a verse that says, and we quote the verse, and then we've got an illustration. So we've got a statement, we've got a verse of the Bible, and we've got an illustration. And we just do that four times with four great principles, and once we've done that, we have shared the gospel in its completion. The first statement is this, we're all sinners. We're all sinners. And we start in Romans 3 and 23, which is the best verse in the Bible because it includes everybody. All have sinned. All have sinned. No exceptions. And come short of the glory of God. And so you just simply read that to people. And you establish in their mind a need. You see, you're putting into their mind a truth, a great principle. And the truth is this that we all have a problem. We have the problem of sin. And not only have we sinned, but we've fallen short of God's glory. Now, we define sin there. Sin means that we've missed the mark, and it shows a target there. We've missed God's target. I really like what it says here, the types of sin that it uses to illustrate. When we lie, well, everybody can say yes to that, can't they? And hate and lust and gossip will win. You know, it didn't say murder and uh, bootlegging and all that. It, it named four sins that just about everybody's done, right? Is there anybody here that's not committed any one of those four? I want to touch you. <laughs> no? On all four of those, I could say, yes. I've done all four of those. I am guilty of all four of those, and just about everybody I know can say the same. And then we illustrate it, because illustrations help people to understand concepts. And so the illustration is, let's suppose you and I throw a rock and try to hit the North Pole. You're going to throw yours 150 feet. I'm going to throw mine 75 feet. You threw yours a lot, twice as far as I did, but you know what? We're both woefully short. And you know what? Some people are this good morally, and some people are this good morally, and some people are this good morally, but it doesn't matter. We've all fallen short. What you're doing is establishing in people's minds that everybody is truly a sinner. We've all missed it. And when the Bible says we've sinned and fallen short, it means we've come short of God's standard. There's a great theologian. His name is David Wells. David Wells. I read his books, and David Wells made this statement. Now, I want you to truly listen to this because here's the thing about leading people to Christ in eastern South Carolina, Florence. It's the fact that they don't think they're lost. The single greatest obstacle you have in reaching people for Christ is to convince them they have a need. You see, they're moral people. They live on the street where you live. They pay their debts. They don't, they're not doing terribly bad things. They pay their bills. And you know what? They honestly think they're Christians because they live a decent moral life. 
and they're blinded by their righteousness. That was the same sin, by the way, that blinded the Pharisees in the Bible. And if you can get number one into somebody's mind and they're not saved, they'll get saved. The problem is they don't think they need it. This is the single most important point you make in sharing the gospel. Romans 3.23, we have all sinned. Here's what David Wells said. Listen, our task is to tell people who no longer know what sin is and who no longer see themselves as sinners. Boy, if that isn't telling, that is our culture in the Bible Belt of South Carolina. To tell people who no longer know what sin even is and who no longer see themselves as sinners that Christ died for sins of which they do not think they're even guilty. That's why they blow you off when you want to talk about the Lord. And they have just enough religion, honestly, to send them to hell. They have just enough religion to really blind them. I'm as good as, and they begin to compare themselves with other people. And friend, I want to tell you, you'd be better than anybody in this room and still be lost. You see, God doesn't save you because your good works or your morality. And that goes contrary. That really is against everything that we have been taught our whole lives. We've been taught all of our lives, be a good boy, be a good boy. And the reality is that is not a substitute for faith in Jesus Christ. So emphasize that, dwell on that. Number two, go over bad news number two. The bad news gets worse, it says. I like that. Bad news number two, there's a statement, there's a verse, and there's an illustration. The statement is the penalty for sin is death. And people don't really believe that today. You may have talked to people about that a little bit there. I mean, is sin really that bad if I lie and lust and, and, and have bad thoughts and if I steal some minor thing or if I'm not honest on my income tax? And Is that really that bad? Well, yes, it is if you understand who God is. Bad news number two is that there's a penalty for sin, that God is going to punish sin. The wages of sin is death, is the verse. The illustration is, if you work for me and I gave you $50 as wages for what you did, you earn that money. You get what you earn. Now, the Bible says that when we sin, we've earned death. And that means we deserve to die and be separated from God forever. You just simply read that. In fact, I would say you give the other person a copy of the book and you can read it with them. It's that simple. And you may need to give an occasional explanation or they may comment. And then there's a transition. Since there was no way we could come to God, the Bible says that he came to us. Now the good news. Good news number one. Flip there, the middle of the book. Statement, Christ died for you. That's the gospel, isn't it? That's the heart of the gospel. Romans 5, 8 says, God demonstrated his own love. That's the New King James Version track. That's the only thing they print this in. God commended his love, our King James says. Either way, God showed us he loved us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There's the gospel. There's those 10 words, the gospel. 
And then we give them a little simple illustration, such a simple illustration. Suppose you're in the hospital and you're dying of cancer and I come to you and I say, if it were possible, let's take the cancer cells out of your body and put them into mine. And if that were possible, what would happen? Well, then obviously I would have cancer and I might die of cancer and you would be well. In other words, I would die in your place. Now, the principle here of Christ died for you is the principle of substitution. You may want to write this in this little book here where you might be taking some notes. You see, so many people don't understand that the gospel, the one word that describes the gospel is substitute. Christ took our place. He didn't die for his sins. He died for my sins and your sins. He died for the sins of the world. And so you illustrate it with a little cancer illustration. If I took your cancer, then I would be your substitute. I would be dying in your place. And down at the bottom, the Bible says Christ took the penalty that we deserve for sin, placed it on himself, and died in our place. And three days later, he came back to life to prove that sin and death had been conquered and that he loved us was proven. And then you have another little transition statement. As the bad news got worse, the good news gets better. And good news number two is the fourth and final statement that you need. You can be saved through faith in Christ. And then we would read Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 to a person. By grace, which means undeserved, unmerited favor, you've been saved. Saved means delivered from sin's penalty. Through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Now, in the middle there, it has faith means trust, because I think people really need to hear that emphasized to them. Salvation is trusting in what Christ did on the cross, his death, his burial, and his resurrection for the forgiveness of our sins. That when he died on the cross, God accepted his death and burial and resurrection as the payment for my sins, substitution. And so we must emphasize that faith means to, to simply trust in the gospel of Christ. What must you trust him for? You ask, there's the question. Answer, you must depend on him alone to forgive you and give you life. And then it uses this chair illustration. Now, I've used this a lot of times. Some of you know it. You know, will that chair hold me up? Yeah, I trust the chair. You know, before you sit in a chair, you don't take the chair and say, you know, I, before I sit down, you don't examine everything. You sit down by faith, do you not? You think it'll hold me? Sure, it will hold me. And the, here's the big thing in the chair illustration that you want to make. You want to emphasize to people that once you sit in the chair, you don't do anything. You're not sitting here working. You're sitting here resting. And that once you've trusted in Jesus Christ, you rest. The Christian life is not a life of striving. I'm not trying to be saved. I don't have to try. He did it for me. The price has been paid. That's called grace, isn't it? So all I do is sit here. Man, I can just sit here and go to sleep. 
I can sit here. I'm totally dependent upon the chair. And in the same way, spiritually, I am totally depending not on the whole life of Jesus Christ, not on the Sermon on the Mount, not on everything about the Christian faith. I'm depending specifically, bullseye, I am depending on one thing, that Christ died for my sins, paid for them, and rose again from the dead and offered his sacrifice to God in my behalf as my substitute. That's the gospel. Now, four things there, four statements, four verses, and four illustrations. And people can give you some comments there, and they're at the bottom of the page. I won't even take time to deal with them. Then you flip the page with me as you're going through the gospel. You see, you could just take this book, a pamphlet, and you you, you, you put one in your pocket and you hand one to the person that you're talking to and you simply go through the book with some minor explanation or answering of their questions. And you, once you finish the gospel, the next thing you ask them, is there anything keeping you from trusting Christ right now? Boy, what a... You and I are familiar with this. It doesn't, it, this doesn't blow us away, but boy, if you are talking to somebody who is not a Christian. What a powerful question. Is there anything keeping you? And I've had people say to me, yes, there is. And they would tell me about some habit, some sin in their life, or some reason that they don't feel that they can put their faith in Christ right now. And when they do, you, you talk to them, obviously, about that. I read just recently, in fact, it was one of the things that tripped my thinking about this. You're all familiar with Robert Jeffress. Robert Jeffress is the pastor of First Baptist Church in Dallas, Texas. You see him a lot on Fox News. He is a very active, pro-conservative, pro-Christian man. He takes a tremendous stand, and I, I greatly admire Robert Jeffress. He said, when I first was challenged to be a fisherman of men, a soul winner, as I'm challenging you, I was a freshman in high school in Dallas, Texas. My freshman high school teacher was a lady who went to our church, and she challenged me when I went in her class. She said, Robert, I want to challenge you to be a witness for Christ. This public school needs some young people who will stand up for the Lord Jesus. And she gave him the very plan that I'm talking to you about. She said, I want you to write down in your Bible the names of five people, just five, five of your fellow students. I want you to commit yourself to praying for them on a regular basis. And then Robert, I want you to share the gospel when you get an opportunity and I, and I know you're going to see them saved. He said, I did that, and I began to pray, and it wasn't but about two or three weeks later, I had an opportunity to talk to my friend Nick. Now, he said, we were friends, but we weren't the same kind of guys. Nick, it was back in the days, we would call Nick today, or back then we called him a hood. And he wore the leather jacket, and he had the ducktail haircut, and, you know, he had the scowl on his face. He had the whole works, you know, the Fonz type thing back in those days. And he said, I sat down and I had a copy of the Four Spiritual Laws, which was a little book put out by Campus Crusade, just about like this book. And the same idea. He said, I took my little book, The Four Spiritual Laws, and 
Nick and I went and I sat down and I went through the book with him, not expecting him to respond at all. He said, I got down to the end and I asked him that question there. I said, Nick, I want to ask him. He said, I thought for sure he'd say no. Is there anything keeping you from trusting Christ right now? And he said, to my surprise, Nick said, no, I'd like to do that right now. And he said, I prayed with him and Nick asked the Lord to save him that day. He told the Lord he was trusting him. He said, I heard in his message, I tell you the truth. Six months later, Nick developed a brain tumor and was dead. When God leads you to witness to somebody, that's the Holy Spirit prompting you, my friend. Don't take that lightly. Would you like to pray right now and tell God you're trusting Christ? Now, I would use the prayer in the book. I'd use that prayer. And you know why I would use it? When you ask an unsaved person to pray, it scares them to death. What am I supposed to say? I don't want to pray in front of anybody. They've never prayed before publicly. So just say, we're going to recite this prayer here. Would you like to do it yourself quietly? Or would you like for me to do it with you? How do you want to do it? I'd let them choose the method. And they can simply read that prayer out loud to the Lord or even silently. And another thing I like about the way this presents it, it's not the prayer that saves people. Did you hear me? You're very quiet. I hope you're listening. Did you hear me? Prayer doesn't save people. When somebody says to me, I prayed that prayer, I don't know if they're saved or not. You can pray that prayer a thousand times. It is not praying a prayer that saves you. It is trusting Christ that saves you. It is putting all of your effort aside and simply sitting down and trusting the merits of Jesus Christ on the cross. Prayer is just simply the way you tell God that you want to do that. Lord, right now, I trust Jesus as my personal Savior. Thank you for dying for my sins. That's, we just tell the Lord what we've done. But it's not saying a prayer that ever saved anybody. And too many people in Florence, South Carolina, and Eastern South Carolina are depending on the fact that one day I prayed a prayer. And it's not the prayer. And that's evidence of it is their unchanged life. But they have nothing there that's really real. There's no observable Christianity going in. It is not the prayer. It is trusting Jesus. That's what you want to emphasize. Then, what I really like in this little track is what just happened. Flip the page. John 5, 24 says, He that heareth my word and believes in me and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment or condemnation, but is passed from death into life. Now here, I really like this to give people assurance. Did you just now hear God's word as we went through this? And they'll say, yes. Do you believe that God, what God said about trusting Christ as your Savior? Yes. Does has everlasting life mean later or right now? It means right now, doesn't it? Does it say you will not come into condemnation or you might not come into condemnation? 
See, you're helping clarify in people's minds powerful, powerful truths. Does it say has passed from death? Or it's, you shall pass from death later on. It says, I've already passed from death into life. You're clarifying in your mind, their mind powerful stuff. The power of the Holy Spirit just explodes in their heart. And you will see people come to know Christ. Don't think because the gospel is simple, there's nothing to it. Don't think that because it's common to so many of us, because here we are weaned on it here. But I mean, for the people out in the world who have no hope, the people in the world who don't know what will happen to them, it's all darkness and despair. This is, as you've heard thousands testify, the most powerful thing in the universe, the simple saving gospel of Christ. I'm not ashamed of it, Paul said. It's the power of God to salvation. Now, somewhere there on your book, take your pen and draw three little circles. And I want them to look like this. Draw a circle and it says W. And then put another circle and put C plus W. And put another circle with a C in it. And I'd say, now tell me which one of those will get you to heaven. W stands for works. Are we saved by works? No. Are we saved by Christ plus some good works? Well, that'll puzzle them sometimes. You say, no. C stands for Christ. We're saved by the work of Jesus Christ plus nothing, minus nothing, when I trust in his gospel for my salvation, I'm saved. Hey, do you know what I've just done? I've just given the gospel to a whole church full of people. I've just shared the gospel, the gospel that saved me, the gospel saved everyone in this room who's saved. It's the most precious thing of all. It costs the Son of God every drop of his blood and with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. As I've gone through it today, I went through it trying to explain how a Christian can use this as a powerful tool to fish for men. I've tried to train you in being a soldier in the army of the Lord, Andrew's army. But you know, if you're here not saved today, I've given you the way to heaven.